If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1, and we're reading from verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Thank you, Rowan. Why don't you have a stretch before we start? You've been sitting for a while. A stretch, smile, all those things. Get loosed up, loosened up. I don't know. English wasn't my strong point. A number of years ago, it feels like a lifetime ago, I um, had the privilege of going on a beach mission. It was what we know as a coffee shop mission. And basically what happens is that a group of Christians from different churches all come together and then they all head off to different uh, country areas or coastal towns. And for a couple of weeks, uh, during the day, they go and uh, mingle with the locals. They run programs for the kids, uh, those that are local, but also those that are visiting those towns. And then at night, they put on a coffee shop. Now, a coffee shop's probably too extravagant a language to describe what actually happens. Uh, we hire a dusty old hall and uh, we put on an a la carte supper of um, cinnamon toast and hot chocolate. And, but the kids love it. They flock in for the cinnamon toast. It's so popular. Uh, great evangelism tool. So you just put on the cinnamon toast. They come in and during the night um, we play live music. We sit at the tables. There's a prayer room at the back where people are praying constantly. And throughout the night one of the team members will get up and give their testimony of how Jesus has changed their life, how they came to know him as their Lord and Saviour. And it's a wonderful time away, and you're really relying on God, and and we saw some really miraculous things happen. We saw some kids come to know the Lord, and so it was a really encouraging time. But if you've been on a beach mission or a coffee shop mission before, you'll know there's one thing that you don't do very much of when you're on those missions, and it's a thing that we like to call sleep. And so you don't have much sleep while you're away. Now, when I went on this coffee shop mission, I went a couple of years in a row, and the first year that I went, I um, was still on my, I hadn't got my peas yet. So, a mate of mine drove me there, and he drove me back, um, which was really good, because at the end of the trip, I was exhausted, and I just wanted to sleep in the car on the way home. And so, my friend was a designated driver, and I was the designated sleeper, and that worked out really well. And so, he had to drive me home, which meant that I could sleep. So, we headed off. And my eyes were really, really heavy, so it only took about three or four minutes for me to be sound asleep. And I had headed off to uh, night nights, and I was sleeping very heavily, um, when a few minutes into the journey, I was woken by a loud noise and kind of a vibration. It was kind of like, like that. And so I thought, my goodness, what is that? And I woke up, and I tried to see what was going on. I thought maybe we'd had an accident or something. But when I woke up, nothing was happening. So I thought maybe I was just having a dream. So I went back to sleep and I just dozed off when the same thing happened, but even longer this time. 
And when I woke up, I realised what it was. I realised that my mate was driving along the, um, you know, the little sound tabs on the side of the, the freeway. Uh, he was driving along those for a prolonged period of time, which means one of two things. Either he's a very bad driver or he's dozing off and he's wandering off the road, neither of which are really good options for me as the passenger uh, to be enduring. And so I realised that he was um, not driving really well, but I was too tired really to say anything. So I just sort of opened my eyes, thought, oh, that's inconvenient, and then I thought, I'll shut my eyes and go back to sleep. Now, for the next half an hour, instead of doing the really long, prolonged ones, he just do little ones. So, you know, he just doze off and... He just doze off again. And for the next half an hour... It kept waking up over and over again to the point where I thought, I've got to say something. I need to sleep. I'm the designated sleeper. It's my job. I need to uh, make it clear to him that that's my role here in this situation. And so I decided to go with the praise sandwich. You know, when you're dealing with conflict, it's always good to focus on the positives. Hey, you're an amazing person. Uh, You're a great driver. Thanks for driving me to this trip. And then you deal with the issue and then you finish with another encouragement. So, uh, hey, mate, thank you so much for driving me. I really appreciate that I can rest on the way home. Um, can I ask you one more little favour? Uh, yeah, yeah, no worries, mate. What's that? Do you reckon you could drive between the lines? Um, just a little thing, but do you reckon you could drive between the lines? And uh, he didn't really say much, but I think he got the message because um, the rest of the drive, he, he didn't go over the lines or maybe I was just too sound asleep to notice it. Uh, and so life, um, when you drive, it's, it's much more pleasant when you drive between the lines. And life in many ways is designed to live, be lived within lines, within boundaries. Um, we have a couple of policemen here this morning and um, they would know that we have been given a law and we're meant to live within that law. And if we uh, digress outside of that law, we will find ourselves in trouble, perhaps in jail or getting a fine or I'm not sure which one's worse, but they're both pretty bad. Um, and so you've got to live between the lines of the law. Uh, In the same way, each and every person in this room has something in common, and that is that we've been given a number of days by God between our birth date and the day that we die in which our life is confined. And so we're given this time, and we've got to try and make the most of the time that we've been given. Life is very much lived between lines. And I think in this passage, it really gives us the lines in which we're to live as followers of Christ. Every disciple of Jesus Uh, since the time he ascended to heaven, has lived between these lines. And what I'm talking about is really the ascension of Christ at the end of his public ministry. He was taken up to heaven. Uh, That happened in the past. But in the future, we're promised that he will come back. And so his descension when he comes back to earth for his people. These are the lines in which we live. This is the, the realm, the space in which our lives are carried out. And so really... This uh, passage gives us a definition. You can see it like an arrow, one arrow going up, one arrow coming down. And the first arrow we find in verse 9. It said, After Jesus said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. There's the up arrow. There's the first uh, uh, line with which we live in between. But the second down arrow is found in verse 11. Men of Galilee, the angel said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the very same way that you saw him go into heaven. These are the lines between Jesus' ascension as he returned to heaven and his descension when he returns for his people. And this is what we need to be focusing on. Focusing on living kingdom-empowered, kingdom-focused lives, spirit-empowered lives in this particular space. Now we can see in the passage today that the disciples 
of whom Jesus was talking to were not thinking so much about what they were being commanded to do in the present, but rather they were thinking and fixated about what was going to happen in the future. So let's pick it up at the first verse that Rowan read this morning. Verse 4, on one occasion, while he was eating with them. I love it how it starts. Don't you love that? One occasion, while he was eating with them. What Sanjeev just said a moment ago is so true. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at uh, this God-given gift of food and how it's a great connector and how so many of Jesus' pivotal moments in ministry and life with his disciples was done around food as they connected together and um, discipled one another and grew together in their faith. Food is so important. So we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so what is Jesus doing here with these people? I believe that he's positioning his disciples to be able to live effectively between the lines. He's basically saying this, don't go out in your own strength. I'm going to give you this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. And so don't go out trying to do things in your own power, your own knowledge, your own experience, your own wisdom. Don't go out with your own petrol tank because you're going to run out of petrol. You're going to run out of steam real quick. But wait. Wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit and it will empower you to be my witnesses. Very important. We're going to learn more about the Holy Spirit next week. Acts chapter 2, but the most important thing for today is that the Holy Spirit is given to us to point us back to Jesus and to empower us to be his witnesses here on earth. And so Jesus is focusing them back on the mission at hand and he's talking about what they need to be doing now and how they, what they're going to need to be his witnesses, but it becomes clear that the disciples are more fixated about the future than they are about the present. Now you've probably met Christians a little bit like this. And those Christians, I think they're Star Trek fans, I'm not sure, but they love apocalyptic language and all the little details. And they look through Revelation, they're trying to, you know, every little detail means something different and they're trying to piece it all together and, and they're trying to come up a, with a formula of when, when Jesus is going to come back. Uh, you know, like in the 70s, the barcode, that was the mark of the beast. And they were convinced that was the mark of the beast and they went around panicking everyone about the barcode and, you know, obviously it wasn't true. Um, but, you know, they're always guessing who the Antichrist is. They're looking at scripture and they're reading about this Antichrist. And, you know, is it Hitler? Or is it Saddam Hussein? Is it, you know, Barack Obama? Or is it uh, SpongeBob SquarePants? I don't know. They're, they're speculating all the time about who the Antichrist could be. And at the same time, while they're trying to nail down who is who and when everything is going to happen, what is happening is that they're distracted from focusing on what they're meant to be doing in the present. I've heard a... a of a guy now, a pastor, uh, not really in this region, but in Victoria now, who a couple of times has taken his church out onto a hill on a particular day because he convinced them that it was a day that Jesus was returning. And so he gathers the congregation, they go out to a hill and they're, they're there. Can you imagine the excitement? They're excited, they're ready, they're praying. Jesus is coming back today. This is going to be an amazing day. At 10 past 12, Jesus is coming back. Can you imagine um, what that would be like? It goes without saying that got it wrong. Rapture hasn't happened. We haven't been left behind or anything like that. Uh, he got it wrong. But can you imagine being on the hill waiting? You know, it gets to, to 10 past 12 and then 20 past 12 and then he sort of sneaks up the front and, you know, a bit sheepishly says, ah, well, guys, um, he's still coming. 
keep praying, keep believing. Uh, you, you know, Jesus is caught up at a lunch appointment or he's double booked, he's coming. Uh, just let's keep praying. I think it might be 10 past one. And so they keep praying and then 10 past one comes and, uh, you know, oh, sorry guys, daylight savings time, got it wrong. He's a few hours behind. He's still coming. At what point would that congregation start scratching their head thinking, uh, awkward? This is really awkward. I don't think Jesus is coming back today. Uh, how do we tell this guy who's meant to be leading us that he's got it wrong again? Well, the truth is that if the congregation knew their Bible, they would never have been on the hill in the first place. Because Jesus says in this very passage, in verse 7, he says, in response to their question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know. Not for you to know the times, not for you to know the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. Then in verse 10, the verse we read a moment ago, they were looking intently into the sky and it's almost like the angels are coming to them saying, what are you doing looking into the sky? Why are you focused on what's happening in the future? Get on with what I'm calling you to do now. Because the same Jesus has gone uh, into heaven, he's going to come back in the same way. And so it's in this period of time that we are to live for him to see people come to know him as their Lord and Saviour. You see, knowing scripture and reading the signs of the times is a, is a good thing and I think it's an important thing um, to understand. And when you look at what's happening in our world today, you'll see it's a fair bit of a mess. And I think there's a good chance that we are living in the end times now, that the time of Jesus' return is, is close and uh, I'm not sure how close, but we, I believe we're living in the time of the end times. But what I have seen over the years is that people who get so fascinated about all the details and when it's going to happen are the same people who are sometimes distracted by the devil um, with this fascination and it stops them from living their lives for God in the present. As we said last week, if our theology doesn't move from our head to our heart to our feet as we go and share the gospel, then there's a good chance it's an incomplete theology and an immature spirituality because we are called to be people who go. And so we need to remain focused on who we're called to be right now, in the present, in the officer region, in our families, in our churches, in our schools, in our relationships, in Victoria, in Australia, in the world around us. And in the passage of scripture we read today, we see this same focus. Let's look at verse 8. It says, But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, you'll be better off if I go. Because when I go, I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. He will come and he will be with you and in you and he will empower you to live for me. I will go, but I will send him to you. And so in the book of Acts, we see this geographical spread start to happen as the good news of the gospel starts to spread through his followers, starting in Jerusalem where they were situated, going further out to Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. Now there's some diagrams that are come up on the screen in a moment and you'll see how the, the gospel sort of keeps going out further and further and further. And this is really what we see in the book of Acts. The book is really broken into three main sections. It starts in Jerusalem and from chapters 2 
through to chapter 8 is all about God's people being witnesses in their local community, in the community, in, in the place of Jerusalem. And they're spending time, they're going, they're sharing the gospel. It's a place where they would know well, they were familiar with. And so they were going everywhere in their local community and sharing the gospel. But I'm not sure if perhaps they got too comfortable there because they didn't really start to spread. And it's not until uh, the seventh chapter of Acts that we see the persecution and the, the death of a guy called Stephen. Stephen was a wonderful man. Scripture tells us a man full of wisdom, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, a great witness for Jesus, very bold, very strong. And this man was dragged um, before the religious leaders and he was stoned to death. And we see that this great man is killed. But through this horrible situation, God uses this to spread his people geographically. So not only was Stephen killed, but persecution broke out in the church. And the followers of Christ were persecuted so badly that they were spread all over the place. And so what we see in this passage is a great man is killed. And the enemies of God are trying to wipe out Christianity. But God twists what is a shocking situation and he turns it around for his glory. I love the way that God takes the worst scenarios in life and he twists them around for his glory. And it's a good thing for us to remember in our lives. Maybe you're going through a tough situation right now. Maybe it feels like a dark season. I want to say to you this morning, and I believe there's people that this is specifically for today. God has placed this on my heart to say to you this morning that the season you are going through right now can be used by God as a defining moment in your life. You are only the person you are now because you have endured what you've been through in the past. And you will only be the person that you're going to be in the future as you endure through what you're going through in the present. God is working through the scenarios. We have planted a church here in Officer. And there is going to be some great things that I believe God is going to do through this church. And there's going to be some times of incredible joy. We're going to see God move. We're going to see God do things. We've got our first baptism service on the 1st of November and, and I'm believing people are going to be baptised and it'll be a day of celebration. I believe that people are going to come to know the Lord for the first time and it's going to be a time of incredible joy planting a church. But I want to tell you this morning as well, there are going to be times where it's going to be a real slog. There's going to be times where we feel opposition. There's going to be times when trials come. There's going to be times when the devil comes in and tries to cause division. And when things are going well, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to serve God, isn't it? When you're seeing God move and you're seeing God's activity in your life, in the life of the church, it's so exciting setting up chairs in the morning. I mean, you're walking with a spring in your step, you're here bright and early, you're whistling. If, I'd whistle, if I could whistle, I would. Something like that. Uh, you're whistling, you're excited about doing it, you love serving God in ministry. And when things are going, God and God is moving, that is, that is wonderful. But there'll be times where it's a slog. And in those times, you'll be setting up the same chairs, gritting your teeth, thinking, what am I doing here? Why do I even come to this church? Nothing's happening. It's difficult. It's hard. And and everything will be difficult. But let me tell you something this morning. It'll be in those moments where God is working most powerfully in our lives and in our hearts, developing stuff in us that will cause us to be the people he wants us to be. The Bible says, rejoice in your sufferings because sufferings produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. One of the things I love about God is that he promises that he works all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And so no matter what you're going through right now, no matter how dark it feels, God can twist that situation around for his glory and for your benefit. 
We've got an extraordinary God that we serve. And so in this passage, we see a horrible situation with Stephen being killed, but God uses that to spread the gospel geographically. And so from chapters 8 to 12, we see them moving a bit further out. They go to Judea, they go to Samaria. And then in the last 15 chapters, from chapters 13 through to chapter 28, we see the gospel starting to literally go to the ends of the earth, primarily through the missionary journeys of Paul. What I want you to see this morning is this, that it's more than just a geographical move that's happening in this passage. You see, in the Old Testament, God chose a people called Abram. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. You'll be blessed. And then he said, I'm blessing you and choosing you so that you will be a blessing to all the nations. This exciting mission to go with with the, the message of God and be a blessing to all nations. But as we read through the Old Testament, it becomes clear that they lost sight of that along the way. They lost this vision that they were blessed to be a blessing. And they started to see people as um, outside of God's plan. They, they became very exclusive. That it was, uh, you, if you were a Jew, you were sort of included. If you weren't, you were seen as dirty or unclean or an outcast. And it was particularly true with their attitude towards the Samaritans, those that they were now being told to go to in Samaria. The Samaritans were what you would call half-breeds or uh, mixed ancestry. They were in the northern kingdom of Israel and they were a combination of Jewish and, and pagan nation sort of ancestry. And so the Jews had this attitude that they were the pure ones and anyone who wasn't Jewish were the impure ones and particularly the Samaritans, they despised them. Wouldn't associate with them, wouldn't talk to them, wouldn't eat with them. In fact, if they walked down the road, they'd cross over the other side and they'd walk down the other side of the road. But what we see in the book of Acts is that we see these barriers, this prejudice, these walls come tumbling down. When we get to chapter 10 in a few weeks, we read about Peter. And Peter's given a vision by God. And in the vision, he says to Peter, uh, really in uh, using food, but really a, a bigger message is his um, attitude towards the Gentiles. And he says, Peter, don't call anything impure that I have called clean. And so we see the gospel starting to move from being an exclusively Jewish sect to start to impact every nation as they had been originally commanded to do from the very start. You know, one of the things I love about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, one of the things I love about it is that he did it for all people. I love the fact that he died um, for, for every nation and every person. I love the fact that uh, every person who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. That as we accept him as our Lord and Saviour, that our sin is transferred onto him, meaning that we are declared innocent in the eyes of God and we can be in relationship with God the Father. I love that about the gospel. But what I love about the gospel is that it goes beyond the bounds of nationality. It goes well and truly crossing the boundaries of geography. God breaks through every type of personality. He's effective despite every type of upbringing. He goes beyond the realms of social boundaries. He permeates through every economic situation. The gospel is a radically relevant message to every nation, in every culture, throughout all of history. That everyone calls, who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. It's good news, isn't it? There's no better news you'll ever hear that you can be saved, your sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. That's our message. He's our vision. In these verses, we start to see God moving. And so let's not be biased when we meet people in our lives. Let's not discount people with different nationalities, different religions, different lifestyles, different sexual orientations, 
no matter how far people seem from God, no matter how broken they look on the outside, we were going to learn in this series that there is no human heart that is beyond God transforming it. There's no sinner that can't be saved. There is no person that is lost and God can't change that situation. There's no heart that he can't turn around and his desire is that none should perish. And so we need to keep praying for those family members. We need to keep praying for those friends. We need to keep praying for those people we meet that God would do something in their hearts. We can share the gospel and that's important that we do. But only God can change a heart. And that's what makes prayer so incredibly important, particularly for those people that we feel like giving up on. You know, you might have those people in your life and you think, man, they're gone. They're so far from God. They're so far from what I would define as a Christian person, someone who's a follower of Jesus. And we, we kind of give up and move on to the next person. But it's really important that we keep praying, that we keep persevering because it's never too late, this side of eternity, for God to change someone's heart. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, people's lives being transformed. Now, as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to see a whole bunch of Christians, a whole bunch of followers of Jesus that we may not recognise. You know, um, these people in the time of Acts were really on the margins. They were the overwhelming minority. Christianity was seen as a small sect amongst many sects, and it wasn't popular. But Jesus warned them that it wouldn't be. He said, don't be surprised if the world hates you on account of me. They hate you because they hated me first. And so we shouldn't think that Christianity is going to be popular, that our views are going to be popular. We are countercultural, and in many ways we're very different to the world around us. And Jesus warned us that that would be the case. And so we're going to see these people that even though they weren't popular and even though they were the overwhelming minority, we're going to see a group of people who were just absolutely dynamic. I mean, they were stepping out in faith. They were radical risk takers. They were sharing the gospel. They were believing God for the miraculous. They were going and telling everyone the good news. They were incarnational as they dwelt with the people. They had this missional posture as they deliberately and proactively built relationships and modelled faith to the world around them. And so when we look at these people in Acts and we sort of stack them up against what we see in the modern church, it's a bit of a head-scratcher sometimes. We look at them and we look at us and we go, we we look completely different. We look at them and we see passion. And we look at the church today, by and large, throughout the world, and we see a lot of apathy. We look over here and we see sacrifice. But over here we're gripped by consumerism, whether we know it or not. Over there we see a church growing. Over here we see a church in decline. Over there we see a church that is bold. Over here we see a church that's wimpy. And so we ask the question, how on earth did we go from being what God had called us to be to being the church that we often seem to be, impotent and pathetic in many ways? What changed? How do we lose focus? I think there's many things that have happened throughout history that contribute to this issue. I think there's one key event in history that I learned about when I was studying church history that I think had a really big shift involved with it. It happened in the year 306 AD where a guy by the name of Constantine became the emperor of Rome. And Constantine uh, was not a, a Christian guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he was probably at that time the most powerful man in the world. And at one particular time in his life, he was going into battle against his brother, as you do. You know, he'd go against, he's fighting a war against his brother, probably because his little brother was spoilt. And if you're an older brother, you'll know you're a pioneer like me. Um, you've got to break your parents in. And when I was in year 12, uh, for me to get a day off school, I had to be in a coma. And even then, I wouldn't be allowed 
uh, to have a day off school. I, they'd wheel me to school, literally. You know, get to school, you lazy you little thing. Um, but my brother, by the time he was in year 12, he'd just go, and be like, oh, Johnny, here's some soup, mate. You know, hop into bed, have the week off, make it the month, have the month off, and when you're feeling better, you can go back to school. So I can see why he's going into war against his brother. He's probably sick of it. I'm going to teach this kid a lesson for the, the last time. So he goes into the battle, and um, Constantine is really outnumbered in this battle. In fact, he believes that the only way he's going to win this war is with divine assistance. So what he does is he prays. And one day he's praying around about midday and he sees a vision of a cross of light on the ground. And he believes that he hears a voice or a vision uh, and this person says to him that it's in this sign, this cross, that you will be victorious. And so he goes into this battle outnumbered, overwhelmed and, and miraculously they win the battle. And so from that point on, he attributed that win to the God of the Christians. And so from that point on, they would paint crosses on their shields and on their armour and they'd go into battle with this cross um, representing them. But something bigger happened at the same time. Constantine had what he called a conversion experience. Some people debate whether he was truly converted or not. But what that means is that literally overnight, he issued a decree that Christianity would become the religion of the empire. And so literally overnight, these radical risk-takers on the margins of society, completely overwhelmed as a minority, literally overnight become the overwhelming majority. They're no longer the minority, they're no longer the persecuted. In fact, eventually they become the persecutors. The Christians, there was a huge change. Some other things happened. Evangelism was no longer a priority. Why do you need to evangelise when everyone's a Christian? Whether they want to be or not, they have to be a Christian because the emperor has said that Christianity is the religion of the empire. So evangelism uh, was no longer as prevalent. The clergy at the same sort of stage became professional. Bishops and uh, you know, ministers and um, priests. And instead of this culture where they would disciple one another and journey together, they would come and they would sit and they'd watch the professionals. And they listen to what the professionals say. They didn't have to read scripture as much because the professional would tell them what to do. The church and the state became one, very much intertwined. Apathy crept in and the work of mission was seen as something that the professionals did rather than something that we all do. And so instead of going and telling, as they did in Acts, the church became more about coming and seeing. Instead of being missional, they became attractional. And I think if you look throughout church history, you see that it's been very much the same, particularly in the Western world, ever since that time. And when we were regarded as a Christian nation, that actually worked okay. Billy Graham would throw a, you know, a crusade, evangelistic crusade at the MCG and 110,000 people would come and many would respond in faith and give their life to the Lord and churches would put on events and people would flock into the churches and they'd listen to a message and they'd come to know Jesus and it was uh, pretty wonderful stuff. Church, we need to wake up and smell the coffee. We need to wake up and smell the coffee and realise that we're no longer seen as a Christian nation. In many ways, we're seen as post-Christian. Kids aren't growing up in Sunday school anymore. People aren't flocking into churches on the weekend anymore. People aren't holding on to biblical values anymore. In fact, they look at the church and they, they think it's outdated. They think it's irrelevant. They look at the church and they see the hypocrisy. They look at the church and they hear about the abuse and they say, we don't want anything to do with you. And we don't want anything to do with you, Jesus, either. And so we can sit in our churches 
We can sit here at Follow Baptist Church and we can do the same thing that we've always done, waiting for people to come and see. But if we do, I think we'll be disappointed. And I think the impact we have will be very minimal. And this is where the book of Acts is so important for us. Because we once again, we're on the margins. We're not the majority anymore. We're once again an overwhelming minority. And we must once again get back to our missional calling. Alan Hirsch, the missiologist, says these words. He says, Recovering a missional understanding of God and the church is essential not only for the advancement of our mission, but also for the survival of Christianity in the West. Let me read that again. Recovering a missional understanding of God and the church is essential not only for the advancement of our mission, but also for the survival of Christianity in the West. For some of us here, talking about mission will be uncomfortable. Talking about living a missional lifestyle will be different. And for for some of us, it'll be a small change as we become more proactive, seeking ways to connect around those. But for others, talking about this is going to be a monumental shift, a huge shift, a complete change of lifestyle as we start to live incarnationally with a missional posture to the world around us. But can I encourage you, and I was encouraged by the panel today, to be people, not to be overwhelmed, but simply just take some small steps. As uh, Sanjeev was saying today, getting to know who lives next door to you is a great start. Who are these people? What do they love? What are they going through in life? How can we bless them? Fathers, it'll be bigger questions like, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Maybe he's going to change what you do with your life. I, I really hope that we are a church that down the track plants more churches. I hope we're a church that sends missionaries overseas. And, and I hope and believe that some people who we send will actually be sitting in the room right now. So maybe it's on the other end of a question. God, what do you want me to do with my life? Maybe it's just praying for opportunities every morning before you leave the house. Perhaps it's praying for those friends by name, writing their name down, praying for them each day, believing that God would do something miraculous in their hearts, even if they're people that we've previously given up on. Perhaps it's just trusting the Holy Spirit that he'll lead you in those conversations, that we'll be led by him. Maybe it's building relationships with those you've already connected with. And as Nathan mentioned before, maybe it's just going to a regular cafe, introducing yourself to the staff and getting involved in a regular rhythm of relationship, hoping and praying that God will give you the chance to proclaim the gospel at the right time, in his time. Now, I really believe Follow Baptist Church is going to have an impact in this region and that excites me. I wouldn't be stepping out to help plant a church if... if I wasn't excited and confident of that. And I believe many, many people over time will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and, and I hope and believe that many will come to know him in this room, sitting here in our services. But the greatest impact we will have is if we realise that it's not about the experts, it's not about people coming to see an expert up the front, but it's up to all of us, the ordinary, to go and tell. And so from the word go, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Can I encourage you to build relationships? Can I encourage you to be a blessing? And can I encourage you to share the glorious news of Jesus Christ as his witnesses to the world around us, as we learn what it looks like to truly live between the lines? Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It's a constant source of encouragement. It's a constant source also of conviction and challenge. Today I pray that you would challenge our hearts to the core, that we would be people who who don't have this selfish mindset of staying and keeping, but we'd have a mindset of going and sharing and telling. Lord, I pray that as Sanjeev mentioned before, that we wouldn't become weird, 
and wacky people. People look at and go, wow, strange. But I pray that we'd be people who are empowered by your Holy Spirit, speaking the truth in love uh, in the appropriate times. Lord, I pray that people who don't currently know Jesus would come to know him, that their lives would be changed and transformed so radically that they'd be unrecognisable as they realise that they are sinners like we all are. And sin needs to be punished, but in Jesus, he paid the punishment for us. May I I pray that that would be such a revelation in their hearts, that they would have no choice but to get on their knees and say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I ask you to be in my heart as my Lord and Saviour. Lord, we pray for those moments. May they be many, may they be regular. But in the meantime, may we still be faithful in prayer, trusting that you would do the work. Just while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, today I have talked about Jesus and what he's done for us. Incredible sacrifice, giving up his life to pay the punishment for the sins that we've committed. Everyone in this room has done the wrong thing at different times. Everyone has fallen short of God's standard, which is perfection. But in Christ, we can find that forgiveness. And today, just while no one's looking around, if you're here this morning and you feel like God maybe is speaking to you through his spirit, you don't know Jesus, but you would love to know more or to start a relationship with him while no one's looking around. I'm just going to ask you just to lift your hands and say, Luke, that's me. I'm not going to prolong it today, but it's an important moment. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I, I would be um, wrong, I think, not to give you the opportunity today to say, yes, I want to know him. So is anyone here this morning who would like to say, yes, I'm going to start this incredible journey? Alright, if there's anyone here that does want to talk more about that, I'd love to talk with you after the service um, because this is the, the most important thing in life. Lord, I thank you for today. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be people who can go and tell this week. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.